All right, if you want to follow, follow along, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, these are the words of God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also glorified with him. Let's pray. Our Father, our holy God, we appeal to you this morning as we find ourselves in desperate need. Our nation is experiencing the ugly fruit of carnal living as we have very much strayed from you and your law word. We ask and pray that your spirit would remind us of the truths found in your word so we may faithfully execute what it is your word commands us. May we be equipped today to serve you tomorrow. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, it's good to be back with you all again. We missed you last week. Thank you for your prayers and your support in getting us to to Nashville and back. It was a successful trip. I mentioned that earlier. Great connections were made um, with others. Uh, who share our vision for a free and prosperous society that is not gummed up in the tangled mess of statism. So it's nice to be with like-minded people, unmuzzled and breathing fresh oxygen. At any rate, um, we're back in Romans today, um, and I want to just look at the first 17 verses. And if, if one were forced to choose which passage of Paul's theology that it almost sums up the entirety of his theology... Uh, Romans 8 would actually be a very wise decision if you had to pick that. It's no accident that Romans 8 is smack dab in the middle of the entire letter. Paul has, we've seen, painstakingly worked through the implications of the King Jesus gospel in such a way as to ensure that not only Jesus himself is honored in what's said about him, but that the people of God are equipped with a, a, a strong assurance of salvation, if you will. We tend to think of salvation just in narrow terms, but as the rest of Romans 8 we'll see, it's very broad. It's about the redemption of the entire world. So we'll come to that next week. 
So Paul, he takes the gospel, the good news of Christ, and he applies it in what we can call a multi-perspectival way. He talks about Jesus and his work in one part. He talks about that individual in relation to Christ's work. So Jesus did this, and here are you over here. How, does those, how do those things work together? And then he talks about the relationships of the Jews, Paul's a Jew, to the gospel. How, what is their relationship to the good news? What is the relationship of the Gentiles now to the, to the gospel? Romans 9, 10, and 11 is coming up, and um, I, I'm a little nervous about covering that because it's pretty dense, theologically speaking. But he also um, talks about where the gospel must ultimately go. Where is the gospel supposed to go? It's supposed to do something in the world. And what is it supposed to do? So when, when you win the people, you win the nations. That's his argument. He, he, he's after the obedience of the nations. He talked about it in chapter 1. He's going to bring it up again in chapter 16. So that's like the bookend. The gospel goes to the nations. You win people, you win the nations. That's the game plan. That is Christianity 101. And incidentally, if you look in your Bible, we have Romans 8 starting and ending with the base same, basic uh, same logic. Romans 8, 1 says there's no condemnation. And then if you flip to verse 39 of chapter 8, you're going to find uh, the last very verse of the chapter says that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he starts and ends with this, in the chapter, a bookend. There's no condemnation. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So it's the middle where he explains everything. So Romans 8 is absolutely a very important chapter. And uh, we're going to break it up into two different weeks. So Lord willing. So let's consider our passage. In verse 1, we'll walk our way through the text. In verse 1, we have the most powerful verses in all of Scripture. Probably if... I mean, John 3.16 is up there as well. There are a lot of powerful verses. This is probably up there in at least the top three. There is no condemnation. For those in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. There is no katakrima is the Greek word. It sounds like a sauce you put on something. This is a judicial sentence. What is condemnation? It's a, and I, kids, I want you to know this too. Um, Condemnation means it's a judicial sentence of judgment that a judge would give an issue to the defendant, the guilty party, having been proven guilty. So if you're in court and you're in the court of God's law and uh, you're guilty as all get out because you've lied, you've stolen, you've cheated, you've lusted, you've done all these sins, you have no legal defense. He said that already in earlier in Romans. You have no defense. We're without excuse. And you're standing there and the judge says, guilty. Well, for us, there's no verdict of guilty in Christ. There's no verdict at all. There's no sentencing. There's no, there's no um, verdict of being guilty. And the question is why? So parents, if, if your kids say why a lot to you, I'm going to say why a lot here. Why is this the case? Paul explains. The Torah of the spirit of life sets us free from the bondage of the Torah of sin and death. That's verse 2. Theologians are perplexed by this. What does he mean, the law of the Spirit or the law of sin and death? What, what, what is he getting at? Well, he's talking about the Torah, but he's talking about the Torah as it pertains to these paradigms, sin and death in one side and life and righteousness and the Holy Spirit on the other. So when you're in Adam, when you're in the flesh, living as a carnal person, what does the Torah do over you? It stands over you in judgment. James says you've broke one law, you've broken them all. So you're, you're under the judgment of the Torah. You're guilty. 
The Torah, um, Paul says, other, uh, increases the trespass, he says earlier in Romans. So you're guilty. That's what Paul means by the law of sin and death. It condemns you as the guilty person that you are. But when you're in Christ, your relationship with the law changes. And it doesn't mean, well, you were guilty and the law was a big meanie thing God did because God was angry and then everything's good in the New Testament. No, not at all. Your relationship to the law changes. You're no longer in bondage. Why? (laughs) Keep going. Because in verse 3, God has acted through the work of his son to condemn sin itself. Okay, no condemnation. Why? Because you've been set free from the law of sin and death. Why? Because God acted through his son to condemn sin in the flesh. The law couldn't possibly give life to a dead man, nor was it ever, ever designed to do so. But what about Christ? Well, Christ Jesus comes along and thus sin is condemned. Well, why? (laughs) Why is sin condemned? Verse 4 in order that the very good, perfect, righteous, and just thing that the law demands would be fulfilled. See the word in the text, fulfilled? That, pleruo, that's the same Greek word that Jesus says in Matthew 5, describing his relationship to the law. He says, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, I came to fulfill. So fulfill ought to be understood as perfected or executed by us. Christ died, sin was condemned, the thing that gives power to the law to condemn you has now been removed. It has died. So, kids, think of it this way. Christ was crucified on the cross, and something happened there on the cross. It's not just that Jesus died, and that that was it. And we, oh, Jesus died, I get to go do whatever I want. No, Jesus died, sin died there. The power of sin was broken because Christ took on, as an innocent man, the wrath of God, the penalty for sin. He was condemned on the tree. Now we, we're, our sin is condemned there too. So in Christ, think of it this way, in Christ sin has been murdered. And now we have two types of human beings in the world. And so whenever you're watching the news this week as things unfold with this election, just remember there are two types of people in the world and it's not Democrat and Republic, <laughs> Republican. That's, that's the wrong antithesis. There are two types of people. There are those who walk and move and exist in the flesh. And there are those who walk and move and live in the spirit. So there's no condemnation for several reasons. And those who live according to the flesh, they have their minds consumed by the flesh. Fleshly living means you're just turning on yourself. You're turning on yourself. Sin is dehumanizing. It erodes the image of God that is on you. So those who live and move and have their being in terms of the Spirit, verse 5, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Okay, so one of the features of your Christian walk, of being in the Spirit, is having your mind set on the things of of the Spirit. Your mind can be changed so that you can think righteously, you can mature, and you can grow, and you can be someone who discerns good and evil, which is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, and what Paul, presuming he's the writer of Hebrews, says in Hebrews 5. So we have yet again another way of explaining this Adam-Christ paradigm in verse 6. Minds set on the flesh are destined for death. Minds set on the spirit are destined for life and peace. So many people, <laughs> so many people, it's obvious their life lacks peace. And I'm speaking, well, Christians, this can be the case too, because they're not living and walking with the spirit. But um, non-Christians especially, there's so much unrest, so much um, anxiety, so much turmoil, 
that goes on in their lives and you think, how can you live like that? Constant stress in your life. Um, it's a very sad state of existence. So the reason that all of this is the case is because minds that are set on the flesh are hostile to God. And we also know one of our favorite verses as abolitionists is in the Proverbs about uh, those who hate me love death. Okay, Those who hate God love infanticide. They love um, medical tyranny. They, they love these things because they love death. And they love death because they hate God, the giver of life, who is life. So that sort of living... That sort of living, um, of being unable to submit to God's law, is, is sad. You're unable to submit to God's law. You won't submit to God's law. And you cannot submit to God's law. That's verse 7. So ultimately, those who are in the flesh, those in Adam, the eye of chapter 7, cannot please God. And what is your calling in life? Verse 8, to please God. But if you're in the flesh, and you're in Adam, and you're in sin and death, you cannot please God. God. By the way, I should say this because it could be confusing to you. Um, the, by, by the word flesh there, there's a couple different Greek words that can be used, but usually when it, um, you have soma, which means body, and then sarx can mean flesh. But flesh is best understood in terms of this autonomous man living in a state of corruption and immorality, working against God with this insatiable rebellion. Just can't get enough rebellion. I love the rebellion, need more rebellion in my life, that sort of thing. So that's what flesh means. This autonomous man who's living in a state of corruption, a state of immorality, with this insatiable lust for rebellion. So having played out those terms and conditions, Paul says in verse 9 that you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. That is if the spirit dwells in you. And he does. See, the, by the way, Paul's not saying, oh, you know, you could possibly live in the Spirit, but not have the Spirit dwell in you. He's not opening that, that door. That, that verse does not mean that. He's simply saying, you have the Spirit. If the Spirit's in you, then the Spirit's in you. It's almost like a way of, of explanation. So the difference between those in the flesh and those in the Spirit is the location of the Holy Spirit. Either the Holy Spirit is over you in the judgment of the law, or he is in you in the sanctification of the law. Okay? So, <laughs> the Spirit is over you in judgment. That's if you're in the flesh. Or he's in you in sanctification. That's the difference. So, as they say in the real estate world, the, the issue is location, location, location. So, it's always a matter of proximity. The issue is proximity. If the Spirit possesses you and you possess the Spirit, then that means that Christ possesses you and you possess Christ. You can't mix up those categories. There's not a situation where you possess Christ, but not the Holy Spirit. You may be in covenant. Okay, children, you, you're in covenant with God, and your job is to obey Him, to follow Him, and do what He commands. That's loving Him and glorifying Him. Um, but part of your proof of that covenant living is following Him and obeying Him and, and looking to His Word. So the Trinity, we can say, is always on the same page. Trinity is always on the same page. Now, of course, if Christ is in you, verse 10, if Christ is in you through your body, though your body is dead and dying, the spirit is life and thus gives life because of the covenant faithfulness of God. That's the righteousness of God. Verse 10. Too many Christians, I think, mess this category up. 
when you become a Christian, when God regenerates you by the power of His Holy Spirit, and you are in Christ, and you're faithfully serving Him, you've been baptized, you're, you're brought into this state of relationship, if you're in that, that doesn't mean that you get to escape this body of death. Uh, death happens. Funerals still happen. Loved ones pass away. And, of course, we await resurrection glory, which we'll get cover next week in the end of Romans 8. But, you know, it's not like you get the spirit and therefore you, you never die. Uh, I see this sometimes in Africa with some of the um, very hyper-charismatic people. Uh, I can handle most charismatics. They're beyond reach because they're all about raising dead people. Let's raise people from the dead. If you can just raise people from the dead, then that's a mark of true spirituality. They probably would disagree with me framing it like that, but that's what I think they're doing. <laughs> no, like death is a real thing, but we have the Holy Spirit, so we have resurrection life. So the, the logic then is this. If, if you have the same spirit in you who raised Jesus from the dead, what does that say about your mortal body? Why do you think the early Christians were fine? Well, not fine, like physically, but like theologically fine with being martyred. Who can take your body? Christ owns it now. No one can take it from you. Men who were burned at the Polycarp, you know, uh, that's early Christian history. Men who were murdered, who were killed because they named the name of Christ. And what do they do? They, they happily go into the kingdom. Um, you know, there's a false martyrdom, by the way, that can be the case, <laughs> but that's a different issue. So what does it say about your mortal body? Well, that's right. God will raise it too by giving you life through the Holy Spirit who abides in you. That's verse 11. So in light of all this, we're not debtors to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Verse 12. We don't owe Satan, sin, and death any bit of obedience. You're not indebted to Satan. You're not indebted to sin. You're not indebted to disobedience. You're, you're not. You don't, um, you don't owe them anything. You are not indebted to your lust. So Paul says, well, don't, don't engage them then. What, what is it? When we pursue idolatry, when we pursue sin, what, is it, what are we saying? We're saying that we owe them something. We owe them our allegiance. But the Bible says, no, you don't. You don't owe them anything. Idols, the only, the only guarantee about idols is that they're going to fail you every time. So don't act like you owe them anything because you don't. You are indebted to Christ who has rescued you from bondage, so worship him. Don't worship your brazen lusts. So you don't owe Egypt a thing, so run from it, which is what I'd like to say to the IRS. So Paul says not to be tempted to go back to your prior way of living. Don't go back. If you live by the flesh, you'll die. That's the only option. If you want a life of fleshly living, of autonomous living, the only end that is for you is death. But if you live, if you truly live in service to Christ, if you truly live in service to his law word, then you'll put those deeds of the body to death. That's verse 13. Which, by the way, I'm going to talk about this in a minute, but I take this to mean that you're not just going to mortify, mortify or kill the, the sin in your own body. Okay, if you're tempted to put your eyes somewhere you shouldn't, if you're tempted to think something or gossip, or you're tempted to do something that is clearly against God's law, if you're tempted to do that, Paul says, put those things to death. Uh, John Owen famously said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That idea. 
But it's not just that. Paul doesn't mean, oh, the only end goal for you, Christian, is to struggle along with sin and just constantly mortify your flesh and that's it. That's true. You should mortify, mortify those, those uh, temptations and so on. But I also think he's saying, I, thought, I also think he means that when you see sin in the world, which is why we're abolitionists, when you see sin in the world, we should try to kill that sin too. We want abortion abolished. We want it to be unthinkable. We want people to just be so disgusted by that thought because of the power of the gospel that it's just, it's unimaginable. And it will be abolished someday. Christ will abolish it. And we need to work towards that end. So Paul brings his no condemnation theology home, literally. He says in verse 14 that those led by the Spirit are sons and daughters of God. If you're led by the Spirit, you are a son of God. You are a daughter of God. The Spirit you were given is called Holy Spirit for a reason. You weren't given a foreign spirit that guides you into slavery and bondage and fear. No, you've been given the Holy Spirit that brings you into the household of God and adopts you and calls you a son and a daughter of the King. So because of this, God is your Abba. He is your father. He is your gentle yet loving dad who always takes good care of his kids. That's verse 15. Um, I, I don't think that... I've always been uncomfortable when people go to, to prayer. Daddy. <laughs> um, maybe that's theologically correct. Uh, it just seems a little less reverent. So there's a balance of reverence towards God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father. I mean, that's what Jesus teaches us in the Lord's Prayer. So there's a whole, there's a reverence, but we're not coming to him as slaves who just want a breadcrumb either. We're his kid. We get to wake him up in the middle of the night. We get to, we get to um, beg him for, for candy at the store, as long as it's organic and sugar-free. And not. <laughs> but um, <laughs> we, <laughs> little, right? Got your attention, kiddos. So but we're that, that's our relationship to God. So we call him Abba. We call him Father. He is our dad. He is, he is the, the Father who loves us and has given us all these good gifts. So he closes out the passage in verse 16. In this mysterious way, the Spirit bears witness in us that we're children. So for whatever reason, I don't know what Paul means here. I'm just going to tell you. I don't know what, how the Spirit bears witness. Um, maybe... Maybe it's in your humility and your posture towards God. Um, I, I just can't give you an answer. I know I, I need to research it some more probably to see what others might be saying about it. But if we're God's children, he says, then we're heirs of God. We're not, we're not slaves who've been pardoned and get to go live however we want. We're slaves who've been adopted into the family and we get to share in the spoils of Christ. That's verse 17. So the, this path to heirship is suffering. With Christ, that's verse 17, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. So it's suffering with Christ in a world that is in need of transformation. It's very palpable right now that we need a lot of transformation in America. And not the kind of transformation that is partisan hacks just saying the same old thing. We need like a humility, a spirit-driven humility before the Lord of glory. But the end goal is glorification, which Paul will get to next time. So let's apply the text and, and just navigate this a little bit. There are many different themes that Paul draws on. The center of his theology is this new exodus. 
There's this new exodus in the Christian gospel. The gospel of the kingdom is one of rescue. God always rescues people. He rescues us from sin. He rescues us from death. And he rescues us from condemnation. That's the heart of the gospel is always rescue. In the language here, it's interesting. There's echoes of the Old Testament all over this passage. The language here ought to remind us of Israel. Israel was God's son. Remember Hosea 11.1? Out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew says that's a prophecy about Christ's birth. Uh, Remember they escaped to to Egypt to escape Herod's um, murderous intentions. And then they come out of Egypt back back, uh, to Galilee where they set up shop for the rest of Christ's um, earthly life. And so, out of Egypt I called my son. There's this sonship language. Israel was brought out of Egypt. He, they came into their inheritance. Their inheritance was the land of Canaan. So what is Paul, what Paul does here is draw on that story, that paradigm of Exodus theology and expands, it, expands its meaning. By the way, if you are a first century Jew and you heard Jesus of Nazareth talking about Emberly read earlier Isaiah 61. That he quotes from that in the synagogue in, in Luke. All of this theology, if you were a first century Jew and you're sitting in the synagogue and Jesus um, is teaching and he starts talking about rescue and freedom and liberty and, and the spirit of God being upon him and so on and so forth. If you're there and you hear this language, what is your immediate thought about rescue? What? Physical rescue, yeah. You um, have you seen the uh, the internet's a scary place sometimes, but it's also a fun place when you see the the meme of did you see the one preparing for election day like and it's the guy putting the blood post blood on the post of the door for the Passover. <laughs> Very funny. I, I still laugh at that, obviously, but. This idea of rescue is a physical rescue out of some sort of treacherous position. For the, for, the, for the Jews, the go-to passage was the Exodus narrative. That's, your, that's how you get free. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Guess what that God did? Our people were enslaved in Egypt. Okay, you're telling your kids this around Passover. Our God rescued us. We were slaves in Egypt and he brought us out. And a bunch of them, you know, moaned the whole time. Oh, it'd be great to go back to Egypt. But, you know, they got their justice (laughs) or mercy as it were. But that's the great liberating story. So when one repents and believes the gospel, Paul says that he or she is brought out of Egypt into this covenant. Baptism is the sign and then filled with the spirit of God. That's all Old Testament language. So as God's covenant children, then, we are granted an inheritance. Our inheritance, by the way, the meek shall inherit what? The earth. The The meek shall not inherit this disembodied state floating around in clouds with naked baby angels and marshmallows. That is not your inheritance. Your inheritance is the new heavens and new earth. This earth, this earth is your home. So don't, don't act like it's not. It is your home. The goal of redemption is the earth, not the removal of the earth. Now, so the gospel then ought to be understood as a new exodus. That's what it should be understood as. There are some discontinuities, of course. Um, think of the, uh, 
wilderness wanderings. The Holy Spirit led Israel in a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day. But in the new covenant, the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in us. That's the Shekinah glory of God coming into, into our space. Okay, so there's some discontinuities from the Old Testament. But the point Paul makes is this beautiful truth that there's no condemnation for us. There's no condemnation. This is the high point in the song of the gospel. The music of the gospel, this is the crescendo of that. Because of what Christ has done, what Paul has outlined in Romans 1-7, through there's no adverse future verdict that will be issued against us. Now, I think there is this general idea in Christianity where we're going to die, yeah, we're going to be raised, and then we're going to face judgment, and I'm not sure how that's going to go. Maybe I did enough good things, God will just maybe turn a blind eye to the bad things I've done. Christian, let's, let's deal with that now. There's no future verdict that's going to go against the verdict that you've received now by faith in Christ. So that future verdict of not guilty, you're not guilty, has been given to us now. Okay, it's, it's now. It's in advance. It's based on the work of Christ. That's what we call justification by faith alone. So the, the result of this then is that we're guiltless. We're guiltless. We're liberated. And we are now truly set apart and truly holy. So think of, think of it this way. In Christ, your guilt has been placed on Christ. Your bondage has been absolved by Christ. And your self-righteousness has been abolished in Christ. You have what you need. Also at the center of this Pauline New Exodus theology is the relationship of the law to, to man. And this is where I want to spend a little bit more of our time, the rest of our time. A.A. A. A. Hodge, he was a Princeton theologian, he said this, While Christ fulfilled the law for us, the Holy Spirit fulfilled the law in us by sanctifying us into complete conformity to it. Let me say it again. While Christ fulfilled the law for us, the Holy Spirit fulfilled the law in us by sanctifying us into complete conformity to it. So, let's um, get a little personal. <laughs> there are two prevailing problems in the church today. And um, this is something that if you were to just step back and watch unfold, I, I feel like Andy and I lament about this all the time. Uh, there are two major problems in the church. One is antinomianism. Two, it's pietistic Neoplatonism. I'll explain it. A lot of isms. Antinomianism and pietistic Neoplatonism. For those unfamiliar, antinomianism means against the law. Okay, it means against the law. It's the view that the law of God has no bearing on you or anyone around you, and certainly not the state. So that's the view. That's what. <laughs> that's why you heard very little election day sermon stuff. Because they don't think the law of God applies to you or anyone around you, and certainly not the president or Congress or the Supreme Court. So that's antinomianism. Antinomianism has plagued the church. The law of God has no bearing. Um, regarding pietistic Neoplatonism, maybe you've never heard that in your life. I simply mean that this is the view that the world can be chopped up into this dialectical salad, meaning this. Neoplatonism, referring to Plato, the Greek philosopher, some of the Greeks believed in material good, uh, material bad rather, spiritual good. <laughs> so 
So the spiritual things are really good and you should focus on that. So go hide in your closet, your prayer closet and spend all of your days there. Monasteries were big in, in, in early church history, those types of things. It's escapism, it's pietism. So only, only the spiritual stuff matters. And the, and the material does not. That's what I mean by pietistic neoplatonism. So these two destructive forces are the main culprits behind why we are in this putrescent swamp that we're in. This mucky, murky mess of a culture. So when, when the Church of Jesus Christ decides that she herself has no obligation to the law, is it any wonder that the world thinks that it has no obligation either? Because here's the thing, you're not going to hear this in many places. Unbelievers, civil government, local sheriffs, county board of supervisors, all the way up to the president and whoever's going to be our next president, they all have an obligation to bow before Christ and his word. They are obligated, all right? They're obligated. They, there's not an option. There's not an option at all. You don't get to say, well, yeah, here's Christ and what he demands of the world, and but I'm in power, so I don't have to bow the knee to him. What we have done to loosen that obligation has been disastrous. It's been disastrous. And too many people want to, oh, let's, we want some medical freedom here. We don't want a mandatory COVID vaccine. No, no, no. Right, well, we don't. But can we like say it less weird? <laughs> can we say it with authority? Can we say it as Christ demands the, the liberty that he gives? He demands that from a civil magistrate? So when we decide as the people of God that we have no obligation to the law of God, is it any wonder that the world around us feels like it has no obligation? And yet we have the Holy Bible for a reason, and we ought to see ourselves as the vice regents that Christ has made us to be. We are heirs, he says. And when we're heirs, that doesn't mean, oh, we get a little um, you know, 30-acre plot in heaven, and we can just retire there, and it'll be cozy. No, we're heirs, meaning that we share in the rule of Christ. We share in the rule of Christ now and today. That's part of Paul's point. We rule with Christ, and since we have been cleaned up by the gospel, we are now fit to go clean up the rest of the world. That's how it works. But if you don't see your calling to do such things, because you've been led to become this pietistic neoplatonist, then of course you're going to quickly take any stay-at-home order. <laughs> it's safe. Government says I have to stay at home. Oh good, I can eat potato chips and do whatever I want. Of course we've just all rolled over during this time. Why, why would we expect anything else? So Christ fulfilled the law for us because we couldn't. The Holy Spirit fulfills the law in us. And as we are sanctified in order to see everything, we are sanctified in order to see everything else around us sanctified. Think of the command in Leviticus, which Jesus emphasizes, the, the New Testament emphasizes. The command is, be holy. Right? Be holy for I am holy. Now, the, the paradigm in the New Testament is, you are holy in Christ, so be holy. You are holy be holy. You're set apart, so be set apart in the way that God demands. You've been sanctified, so pick up the trash. 
You've been sanctified, so pick up the trash. And the reason you're not condemned by the law anymore is because someone was on your behalf. And covenantally speaking, you were in him. You died too. You, you died on the cross with Christ. You were buried in the, in the tomb with Christ. And you were raised with Christ. And the very same Spirit who saw to it that this project, Save the World, happened is now responsible to fulfill it inside of you and everyone around you. So how does, go to the heart of the issue, how does God deal with your heart? How does he heal the root problem which brought about the condemnation in the first place? Remember, Jesus said in John 3, you recall, he said, I didn't come to condemn the world. Why didn't Jesus come to condemn the world? It was condemned already. He didn't have to condemn it. It was already a smoldering pile of trash, of rebellion. He didn't have to condemn it. It was already condemned. So how does he deal with your heart, though? He deals with your heart by entering it. Kids, think of this. He deals with your rebellious heart by entering it. He cleans your heart up. He gives you a new heart. No amount of external law will suffice. Think of that with your kids, parents. How many times when we're end of our rope and we say, well, why do I have to obey? Just because I said so, which is true. <laughs> Because you said so, and you're tired of the room being messy, as it were. But it's not just because I said so. It's because Christ is in your heart. You should be joyful about cleaning your room. You should be joyful about taking out the trash. You, we should be joyful people. And the only way out of this dev devastating predicament of sin, we are that wretched man, right? The only way out, he says, is, is for God to work the miracle. And what a miracle God has wrought. He... You've been set free. We've been set free. The Spirit who, who carries out the will of the Father and the Son changed your heart, your nature. He changed your affections. He changed your mind. He changed your will and your volition. Think of it this way. The Holy Spirit's job is to be the janitor of your, your soul. That's his job. He's the janitor of your soul. He's the, let's, we'll give him a better title, the sanitation engineer. Your Adamic flesh was condemned by the law. You were unable to please God. Your mind was filthy. Your mind was unkempt. Everything about you was stone-cold rebellion. And yet God entered in. He entered in. The miracle of the gospel is that your dirty, your untidy, and deranged person was swept up in the grace of God. That is the heart of the gospel. And because of this, we now walk, we talk, we act differently. We walk in the Spirit who guides us on this law-saturated path to glory. God is now our Father. He's not our enemy. Christ is our older brother. He is no longer our enemy. The Holy Spirit is our resident theonomist. He's not our enemy. Have you ever thought about it like that? For the believer, the Holy Spirit is the resident theonomist who guards your heart and mind. What did Ezekiel promise? That the law would be written on your heart by the pen of the Spirit. So Paul says, act like it, provided you suffer with them. Christianity isn't supposed to be easy. We were born for adversity. We were born to deal with the world's onslaught, and yet Christ is our King. So a couple more final thoughts. If, if Christ is to be the Savior of the world, and He is, then we have to share in that sovereign saving rule. We've been brought into it in, in biblical law, Back in, think of the Old Testament, uh, it was the firstborn who had the larger share of the inheritance. Remember the story of um, um, uh, Jacob and Esau? And Esau was a very hairy man, which is so funny. 
the Bible would just point that out. And Jacob was the trickster, and Esau was the oldest. He 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 was out of the womb first, and Esau was to give, be given the firstborn. He had a double portion of the blessing of the inheritance. But what did Jacob do? He put fur on his arms and tricked his blind dad into giving him the blessing, and here we are. But the firstborn was supposed to have the larger larger portion of the inheritance. It was the firstborn who was blessed in order to bless others. And Christ, we know from Colossians, is the firstborn from the dead, and yet we are here in Romans 8, fellow heirs with him. So we've been brought into the covenant blessing, which means that we get to share in the kingly rule. What's his is ours. Christ wields his throne and his scepter. It's ours. So we share in it. And this means that we must exercise godly dominion on the inside of our lives and exercise godly dominion afterwards on the outside. We have to get our theonomy, our, our, our law of God squared away in here, and then we may proceed to get our theonomy squared away out there. The way Paul is arguing about no condemnation is meant to be with the grand vision of global Christianity. So there are, we know a lot of weeds in our life that we have to pull out. Always be weeding your life. And then you look around, <laughs> there are a lot of weeds in culture. <laughs> there are a lot of weeds in the world that need to be yanked out. But do the weeding here and then get to work doing the weeding there. As Luke 19.13 says, we are to do business. We are to occupy the land, reconstructing all things in terms of Christ and his scepter. So the Holy Spirit leads us to the king. He leads us to the king so that we may rejoice in our newfound family. And all of that gives us what we need to get to work in the world. So your no condemnation is meant to seep out into the world so that there will be no condemnation out there. So the, the Christian life is one making sure that there's no condemnation brought to the nations. That's the grand vision, which is what we'll get to next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the blessing of being able to be outside, to have sunshine, oxygen. You've given us what we need, and we thank you for this day. Father, I pray for our kids here today, the children, that you would teach them from an early age these theological truths so that they would be well equipped, that their mind would be trained accordingly to, to know who they are, to know what their purpose is to go out into the world. Father, there may be some here today who struggle with this idea of there being no condemnation because for the most part, they have lived their lives feeling condemned and guilty and shamed. But we know the gospel breaks all of those chains. We know the gospel handles those things. And so we pray for your spirit to help us to trust it, to trust the promises of your word today. Father, would you receive our worship, would you receive our praise? And as we go to share in this meal afterwards, would you be exalted in Christ's name I pray. Amen.